Okay. Let's give a warm welcome to our speaker tonight, Terry R. from Los Angeles. Hello, my name is Terry, I'm an alcoholic. Grateful to be sober and grateful to be in a world that I eventually feel comfortable. Um, almost every place else I, I hang on to a, a sense, an anxiety that I'll be found out, uh, that I'm not measuring up to other people. I'm hoping to God that I'm better than you. I'm hoping even more that you notice that. Uh, and then I hate myself for that. And, you know, it goes on. You know. uh, since we're all doing that together here, we kind of get a laugh out of it. But, uh, so taking it seriously. Anyway, I'm sober, I'm grateful. Uh, and we share our experience, strength, and hope, what it used to be like, what happened, what it's like now. Um, but what I always share in the beginning is um, that I started out my life in the middle of a discussion about the disease concept of alcoholism. That's the, that's the first thing I remember them talking about, the grown-ups around the kitchen table in Hawthorne. What was alcoholism and the first drink gets you drunk? Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. If they had only admitted it, then they could do something about it. Uh, and that was going on. That's, that was, listen to this. Um, my father was alcoholic, and the reason the discussion went like that was that he was already a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1943, 44. So I had this legacy of the disease and some recovery. Um, and my father had a slip, and, uh, and he got back in the program. He was active in the program. My mother, later I kind of quizzed her about that, because I was too little to remember anything about that. And then she said, well, I think he was working with other alcoholics, because one man he took home peed on the couch. And I guess that means he was a newcomer, I think, you know. Um, And so there was that going on, and my mother has uh, three brothers who are alcoholic uh, who come to see us. And my, my father had a slip, and he died in withdrawal. He died in the, in the suffering of, of withdrawal, an alcoholic sanitarium. And I knew what my daddy died of, and I, and I grew up with that awareness. Um, and it was being told, it's a disease. Do not think badly of your father or your Uncle Bill or your Uncle Matt, or your Uncle Ed. Um, uh, they have a disease. Say a prayer for them. And that is the kind of, uh, that was the kind of orientation that went on. You know, That's a good orientation. Uh, my mother even pointed out people in the neighborhood who were sober alcoholics for our admiration. You know? There's Mr. Moorfield. He has six years sobriety. You know? We all look over 
Mr. Warfield, and uh, his complexion was pretty bad, but otherwise he was all right. Uh, uh, and so I was even asked, you know, to look up, to admire an alcoholic who had accepted God's grace to be sober. Um, and with that, I um, grew up with my uh, two of my mother's brothers, which show up a lot uh, when they were not in good shape. And it was easy to find our house. We were in Hawthorne, and that days that was the end of the five-car line. The streetcar went down, and if you're on schedule, you just went two blocks, got on the five-car, and you could pass out or anything. And, and when they kicked you out, you were two blocks from our house. Uh, just go down the hill, and, uh, and so I went with that kind of thing, and it gave me more of a chance to think about the disease. And uh, some of the thoughts I had was, man, if I grow up and if I become an alcoholic, and I was led to believe that was quite possible, you know. Uh, well, I sh- I'm sure going to quit, you know, because I'm never going to do to anybody what my Uncle Bill does to me, you know. And they talk about child abuse, you know, physical and sexual. He didn't do either one of those things to me. But what he did do, I swore I'd never do to a kid, especially. And he would be there, and he would sort of maneuver me into a corner and bore me to death. Uh, uh, he'd trap me and start talking about definition of words and old times and things and I didn't get I didn't get my turn in the conversation that's the way it is with a drinking alcoholic you don't get your turn Uh, they just talk and talk and talk and talk and you try to get your turn and you just get run over you know Uh, and then you lose interest in getting your turn you just want to get rid of them I have this fantasy of a net coming down and getting them and Call the cops, anything, you know. Um, I had my Alamon training uh, at that time, um, trying to achieve some control over my Uncle Bill and uh, feeling of a failure that I couldn't do that. Um, and so that that was a setting. Uh, and we were we weren't didn't have a lot of money with uh, my father gone and. Um, but we had stability because uh, uh, there we were in the same house going to school. And so I can't complain. I had a lot of, a lot of, you know, uh, commitment around me. Uh, my mother and the, and the extended family and uh, had three little sisters and a brother. And we, uh, I went to the seminary as early as they let you do that started to be a priest. I think a lot of us who grew up in alcoholic families tend to go one way or the other in an extreme way. It, either we're troublemakers and just give them hell, or we try to create order by getting A's and behaving ourselves and create order in the universe. Uh, I, I took that path. It's funny, we all end up in the same meetings. <laughs> I know I took off. I was um, 
I had taken a pledge not to drink till I was 21. That's what Catholic kids did in the 50s, 40s and 50s uh, in Southern California because they were Irish bishops and they all invite the whole class to stand up after confirmation and take a pledge not to drink alcoholic beverages until you're 21. And um, I took a very courageous kid not to stand up. <clears throat> and, but I went along with it. I was all for it. Let's do it. Um, everybody told me, don't worry. Nobody takes it. Nobody keeps the pledge. Have a drink. Um, <laughs> but uh, I kept it. And uh, that kind of went along with going to the seminary. And, uh, and I went through those years. Um, you know, a bit of a, uh, you know, a introverted, philosophical, neurotic, self-centered kid uh, who had pimples and uh, uh, was worried about getting muscles. Uh, as you see, it didn't turn out very well. Uh, uh, the, uh, one thing... <laughs> Every every boy's waiting for him, and they, some get him, some don't. Um, and so I had to rely on sarcasm uh, for self-defense, and uh, that played in things later. I um, and then uh, when I was in college, I wrote a paper on alcoholism. It was the I thought, well, I've been thinking about this a long time, so I really did more reading. I read the big book several other books, went to AA meetings for research, uh, two years before I had a drink. And uh, if there's a moral to that, it's, um, I think, if you get a good education, study hard, think a lot about it, do some research, have a good attitude, say your prayers, won't do you any good. <laughs> uh, if you... Um, If you have the ism, if you have the ism and you drink, you know, none of that stuff will prevent you from being alcoholic for a half hour. Um, as it happened, uh, when I turned 21, that's when my pledge was up. And I knew it was up, and uh, it didn't, that birthday didn't get by me without me noticing that, you know. Uh, I was looking forward to it. And I went to the store and bought a bottle of bourbon. Bitters, maraschino cherries, got the recipe book out of U.S. News and World Report. Uh, the, uh, that Southern Comfort ad, you know, it used to have 16, uh, America's 16 most beloved cocktails and the recipes for each one of them. I think that's considered provocative now and they don't allow them to have that ad. But, um, I mixed up a batch of Manhattans and, uh, Someone remarked at the time that I probably wouldn't have any trouble with my drinking because nobody in my family's history had taken that much trouble to make a drink up until that point. Uh, and, uh, and so I had a couple of Manhattans and discovered America. It was, uh, I crossed the invisible line sometime in the early afternoon of my 21st birthday. Uh, and truly, there was no lag time. It was it was right then, then and there. Uh, the feelings, as I as I remember, 
were of this disease of alcoholism. Just the great excitement of discovery, my imagination racing uh, to protect what I had and how can I get more, uh, make the world safe for drinking, uh, keep it. Um, uh, and uh, early on, I don't know if it was that day or not, but uh, very early in the game, uh, I looked around and I could tell that I was different than the other people in my relationship to alcohol. You, know, you could just tell by the way they had handled the glass. You could just tell they did not deserve the drink they had. Uh, so the other people were at a party and they were having a drink. I was drinking and I happened to be at the party. Uh, uh, that's a, a fundamental difference in, in, in the events, the meaning of what's going on. You know. uh, I value a high. So the center of my disease, uh, to me, is um, my whole system, my, uh, my just basic physical whole system, which just thinks the greatest thing in the world happened if I have a drink. If I get alcohol in me, and it's just a, the feeling I get is um, everything's going to be all right. They can't get me now. And it's not just that. It, you know, for me to say, I really liked to drink, that is inadequate to say that. You know? That's not, that is not the way it was. It was something tidal, you know. The tide was coming in. Some inexorable, deep shifting of things. And it says, and it, you know, a very a calm voice, but a very authoritative voice. Make sure you get another drink. It wasn't fooling around. Just make sure. This is serious. Make sure you got a drink lined up here. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, sir. I'll do that. You know. Um, and there's no discussion. I think kind of early... There was a sense that, um, you know, it wasn't in so many words. I try to put the feelings in words now that I didn't have words for. It was, um, don't discuss this with anybody. There's no one will understand this. We know you need a drink. Get the drink. Don't discuss it. It makes people nervous. Uh, if you discuss this with them, you know, they just go through a lot of suspicious thinking, and uh, it, it's, it you'll do them a favor. You know, uh, in fact, that was something that I, I was sober for, for a long time before it dawned, before it hit me. But I wasn't. But I was. I suffered from the effect of lying. The minute I began to lie, I suffered the effects of it. Know, a feeling of being alienated, of being, of not having the kind of self-respect, not having that just looking in the eye comfort. Uh, I suffered right away, but I didn't know what was going on. You know? But when I drink, I lie. I don't just tell a lie here or there. I lie. You know, it's a it's a coherent policy. 
<laughs> what you do is the project is never let them know. Never let them know how bad you want a drink. Never let them know what you're ready to do to get a drink. Never let them know how much you're enjoying the drink you got. Never let them know how worried you are you're not going to get another one. Never let them know what the plan is. You know. Never let them know anything because they'll be checking up on you soon enough. Don't give them any free ammunition. Uh, and that's, that's a principle. And I was abiding by that principle early in the afternoon of my 21st birthday. You know? I didn't say, oh, great, is this every... No, uh, no don't say that. You know? If they ask you if you want a drink, don't jump up and down and say, oh, boy, no, no, no. Just say, uh, hmm... Why not? I'll have one. Yeah. Uh, I've uh, had just a little fantasy trip of um, what it would have been like had I ever told the truth in a drinking setting, you know? I never did. But this fantasizing telling the truth helps me see more clearly that I never did. Um, and my fantasy of telling the truth would be, let's say, uh, it was a Friday night or Saturday night and you invited me over to your place. And if I didn't have a better offer and I knew there'd be booze, I'd say, yeah, I'll be over. And if I were going to be telling the truth, I'd show up and knock on the door. You'd answer the door and I'd say, hi, thanks for asking me over. I'd like to lay my cards on the table and get a few things straight before we start out tonight. I'm here to drink. Uh, uh, I'd like a double scotch right now. No. no, not after we talk. Now. I get my double scotch and say, look, you were nice enough to ask me over. I'm going to be a good sport. You've got games to play. I'll play the games. You got other people coming over here. I'll try to mix it up and keep this thing rolling, okay? Just don't get between me and the bar. We're going to get along all right tonight. You know, in this kind of a night, I I get a little bit gassed, but usually I don't do too bad. Uh, I get through it all right. But once in a while, I go crazy. And um, I might show up in the rug or get in a fight or insult someone enough to be sued or try to seduce somebody, but that's the chance you take when you ask me over. <laughs> and um, I just um, have a feeling you didn't tell the truth either. Uh, and of course, I had no idea that was the truth until I was sober and alcoholic anonymous for some time. You know, I didn't know that was the truth, but that's the truth, you know. Um, and I dedicated myself to, to, for you not to know the truth and for me not to know the truth, you know. It was real important uh, in order to keep the thing going. Uh, and, and, and I I was, um, in my, my student years, uh, I drank, I always drank alcoholically, because that's what I am, an alcoholic. But that doesn't mean you always drink excessively. You know? 
I drank many times on the outside very moderately because I just couldn't get any more. But, but when I drank, it was a, what I was doing was drinking. If I had one drink for that three or four hours, what I did was have one drink. That was the main event. It was a tragic situation, but I didn't get another one. I was very depressed. I felt that the world, no one knows just how awful this is. Just to have one teaser. Uh, just mess with you with this one drink. Then leave you. You know. Um, but that was the main thing in my mind. When there was booze, that was the main thing. Uh, and I drank too much at times uh, when I when I could. I was surprised, though, in my, in my early time, I was really surprised at how much people adapt to our drinking. You know, the world's adapting less and less. Thirty years ago, they adapted a lot, you know. They just figured, whenever you go to a restaurant, at least one person would, you know, fall in the soup or roll out the chair. Well, you know, too much drink, too bad. <laughs> um... Or even more, you just ignore it completely, disappear, you know, invisible. Bar stool, yeah. <clears throat> um, but it's not so acceptable now. It's, uh, I remember I thought I'd just be ostracized, I'd be upgraded and all this. Uh, and uh, people just kind of walked around, you know, edged around. It, people don't want to mess with a drug unless they have to. You know, this, uh, that I know was in the program and he he was he and his partner went into this little funny dive to have something and it was the guy next to him was eating spaghetti and he gradually went down into the spaghetti and those little bubbles were coming up from his nose spaghetti sauce and, and he said we just hope we can get out of there without having to you know do anything about this and cops were sneaking out slowly so they wouldn't have to Stop the bubbles and the spaghetti. Uh, and, uh, and it, it went on. I was ordained a priest. I live and work as a priest in Los Angeles right now. And I, I work in this, they say, the field of the dangerous thing, the two-hat thing. Um, but I get to do for a living what I'd have to do if I didn't have a job, which is... Uh, a blessing in many ways, you know. Um, but once I was ordained, it was um, down the tubes quickly. I was, um, uh, I got a, booze were much more accessible. Uh, and, I, and I was not cynical about my work or my vocation. I was trying to learn the ropes and do what I'm supposed to do and learn how to do it right. Uh, and wanted to have a drink like the other Catholics got to do. Um, we're, um, you know, it's not against my religion to drink. Uh, some of you were sinners from the start, weren't you? Uh, you weren't, uh, we were supposed to start. Uh, we're a little tough on sex, but you can have a drink. <laughs> uh, the, um, shouldn't say that. I'm going to get uh, in trouble someday. This, um, 
Yeah, the tape too. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the um, and of course I was alcoholic. I am alcoholic, so it just I just did my chapter three. Uh, um, was swearing off forever and for a day or so. Um, was saying my prayers, asking God's help, asking God's help to help me drink right. And then when I Social drinkers should ask God's help to help them drink right. That's a proper prayer if you don't happen to be alcoholic. You know? um, and, uh, of course, I was, so I'm asking, you know, I didn't know, you know just how willful that was. Um, and I didn't know, from my leap forward, just until I was sober for some time, and getting used to the program, and it, I thought back in my prayers, because I had occasion to think of prayers because I was in a recovery house for priests. You're we all priests. And the rule in the house was we had to wear our black suit and Roman collar to every meeting we went to. And we'd go in groups. It'd be, you know, just, uh, and then, um, and that's part of central New Jersey when this group of big guys in their black suits, little collars and hats and overcoats. It was the wintertime. Wintertime in Jersey. These groups of five or six priests at once tramping into a Methodist church basement. Um, uh, when they saw us coming, they were not waiting for spiritual inspiration. I'll tell you that. They... They knew where we were coming from. And I remember um, being asked several times, because if you're a sitting duck, you know, there you are. And um, this person would uh, say, uh, well, Father, you know, you're a priest and everything. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, step two came to believe and surrender and prayer meditation uh, well, you know, you're a priest. I just wondering, uh, did you ever pray? Uh, you believe in God? <laughs> um, and that would irritate me a lot when people would ask me that question. Because I prayed a lot. And without much effect in the way I was looking for, you know. And I had to be in the program for quite a while before it, you know, the lights were coming on, on the way for it to occur to me how willful and childish my prayers were, you know. Uh, I, I knew about thy will be done. I knew you should say thy will be done. I could sing thy will be done in Latin, you know. I, could, I studied thy will be done. And of course, I was all a kind of God. We're supposed to tune in to God's way of doing things and try to conform to Him rather than enlist Him into your project. You know? See so if you can get the big fellow to help you out with, uh, with what you're up to. And um, I knew that in theory. What I did not know, and what 
I knew a lot about her. I knew very little about me. What I didn't know was that I was uncritically equating God's will with whatever I wanted when what I wanted I saw that um, when what I wanted was anything in the ballpark of all rights you know if, if you know study, getting an A in a class is that bad that's good isn't it isn't it good to improve your work skills? That's good. Isn't it, isn't it good to improve your relationship with people and then have them like you more and admire you and love you and think you're wonderful? That's good. And uh, all those things that are kind of good that aren't sins, I mean, what's wrong with that? Well, the, the main feature of all these things I'm mentioning is that they're the dream of every immature, self-centered person on the face of the earth. <laughs> um, I was you know, praying for me and my way and my happiness. And uh, I'd like to become well-adjusted and happy and rich. Uh, And uh, God and I have any time later, we'll be glad to help you out. Um, actually, I didn't even think that far. Uh, but the uh, and when I would think of service to others, I was thinking mainly of me being competent in serving you, so that I would have a high rating of being a service to others. Because I needed to have a high rating. I mean... I needed it. I had a very low opinion of myself, so I needed a high rating. And, you know, to pray like that, to kind of be, and I call them whiny prayers, you know, to whine to God. Um, <laughs> kind of the old whiny, panhandling, built-in approach to uh, prayer, you know. <laughs> And when I'm in the middle of it, I don't notice anything. It just seems like it's pretty good of me to be praying. I know people aren't even praying. At least I'm praying. You know? Uh, and uh, you kind of learn something about that in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know? But I have to, I had to be around you and have you tell me how you catch yourselves at being self-centered and, and self-willed, uh, uh, where I wanted my stuff. And it's, it's always depressing. Even while, uh, even before I get it, or, or if I might get it, or I'm probably going to get it, just to be in a self-centered mode, just to be filled with a concern that I be wonderful and widely regarded as wonderful is um, sick. You know. And it's a bad trip right at the start. Right? It's a, it's a constricted, sad, suffocating downer. Uh, and you don't even have to be drunk. 
just have a little self-centered fear and hang in there alone. Um, uh, make sure no one gets at you. Um, anyway, I'm slipping into preaching here. Um, but that's a change to take when you ask me over. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, anyway I, I went out in my drinking thing and uh, just my chapter three of uh, having... Um, uh, you know, not being done yet when the party's over, having to get done before I went to bed, robbing my way home, um, and quitting and quitting and then starting and hiding drinks and um, uh, and I quit one time for almost six months by myself and uh, resumed drinking with the thought that I had proved I could quit. I was a pretty good quit. It was over five months. And as long as I'm sure I can quit, I might as well start. Because um, uh, if there's any trouble, I'll just quit fast. And, uh, and rip it in the bud, you know. Uh, the, um, and then after that, after that six months, that almost six month period, things were grim. It was the, the my disease progressed kind of rapidly. I was a priest less than three years when I was just an absolute mess. I was drinking a fifth a day most days uh, and trying to survive with that. Get drunk once a week, skip drinking once a week. Uh, never knew what day I'd get drunk. Never knew. I never knew when it would happen. I, some people, you can die getting drunk on Friday and Saturday nights. That can kill you, you know. But it would be Tuesday morning, you know. Uh, <laughs> I just did not have a rhythm of uh, that was matched to society, um, and uh, and that went on. And I um, I was I want to figure out what it's like, you know, the inside, um, uh, the dead inside feeling. Uh, I was sober for a while, and it heard me about this deadness once we're drinking, and the. Um, uh, and the way I look at it is that when I drink, uh, I can't do what you got to do to live. If you're going to live physically, you got to breathe in and breathe out. To live even chemically, there has to be, you know, the, the fresh stream coming in the pond and, the, and a, another one going out or it gets stagnant. Um, there's got to be exchange. And to live emotionally and spiritually, the way I look at it, you've got to have stuff come in and stuff go out. On that level. And to me, that means I've got to be able to speak the truth. I've got to speak my heart. I've got to say something that I've got to say. You know? And I have to be vulnerable to you. I have to listen enough so that what you say might change me. I can't be so protected that it doesn't matter what you say. You know? I've got to be open enough to be encouraged or hurt or something or... Or I'm dead. You know? And when I drink, I can't do either thing. When I drink, I can't tell the truth. You know? I already kind of did a little skit on that. You know, I, I can't tell the truth because I'm not interested in telling the truth. I'm interested in surviving. And um, uh, even if I try to tell the truth, 
I don't know what it is uh, for myself. Um, I know the, um, and, and besides that, everything's top secret material. You know, can't let it out. And then when you have somebody who's mature and smart and loving, and they have the time, you can't tell the truth to them either. Because if you do, they'll try to help you. And it's a lot harder to get a drink when they're going to help you. Uh, it's hard enough to get a drink as it is without having somebody hovering over you going to help you, you know. Um, and I, so I can't tell the truth. I can't get stuff out. And I can't get stuff in because I'm just like my Uncle Bill. My Uncle Bill would trap me and bore me to death. He bored me to death because he couldn't listen. He didn't let me get a turn. And when I and when that hit me, you're like your Uncle Bill. When you drink, drinking uses up your life energy, and you've got nothing left over to listen with. I can't afford to let. I just I'm barely hanging on, man. I'm just barely making it the way it is with the regular stuff. I can't let new stuff come in here. <laughs> I mean, I can barely handle the old stuff. I'm all for you. I hope you make it. Um, it's just that I, I don't have I just can't care right now I mean I I approve of caring I think caring is very good I'm just a little busy now and I can't care it's uh, drinking on a good day you know and I'm dead you know dead on a good day Inside, emotionally and spiritually. And thank God I was interrupted. And it was, you know, when we get into trouble, it's uh, our relatives find out, our friends find out. They, just, they won't pay any attention for years. But once you get into real trouble, uh, I mean, I got into, I, in one week I got fired from my job. I would have some showdowns with my boss about not drinking anymore. And I said, I won't drink. And I did. And I and then I slowed down, and then I drank after the last show. I, he turned me into the boss, his boss, and, and um, I got to talk to the cardinal, downtown. Uh, and then I lasted a week or two for the cardinal, and uh, showed up at quarter to eight in the morning for the 6.30 mass. And uh, uh, I said, I guess this is it. But, um, and so I, I said, I guess this is it. And he said, yeah, this is it. Uh, and I lost my assignment. Now, that was followed only in about three or four days with getting to go to an aversion treatment hospital where you get a nausea drug and warm salt water and throw up as a, the approach to sobriety. It's a Pavlov dog approach. Um, now, all of that, that that news got around. You lose your job, the news gets around. To lose a job, any job, is tough. And it was close to the bone, a job. You live at your work and drive a company car, it's a big deal to lose your job, you know. Um, and going to the hospital. Well, you know, when that, when that happened, that got everybody's attention. As it happened, if you ever got arrested or 
divorced or, you know, fired. And they think, oh, gee, what? And they say, how, you know, oh, I'm sorry and all this. And I, you know, when, when tragedy struck, uh, not tragedy, but, you know, when, when the, the real outside thing got in trouble, lost my job, hospitalized, on probation, blah, blah, blah. That didn't particularly impress me. I mean, I live with a sense of doom every day. And when real doom shows up, that's not, it's not that much of a contrast to a regular day. Uh, a regular day of drinking, you know. It's just, uh, it's more interesting. You get to take a drive someplace new, you know. Um, meet new people, attorneys, doctors. Uh, uh, it's um, exciting, you know. It's more interesting. And, uh, but uh, as far as the emotional, where my gut is, it's not that much different. Because I'm alienated all the time when I'm drinking. Uh, and I went through that, uh, those, uh, went through the, the treatment. Ten days, five throwing up sessions, um, <clears throat> two easy follow-ups later, uh, and I—I um, I was sure that I wouldn't drink again because now the now it's out, now it's obvious. Everybody knows. Cardinal knows. My mother knows, and my cardinal and my mother, my cardinal, my mother and the cardinal agreed uh, that I was alcoholic, and everyone else did. And I thought, oh, I just won't drink. I know I won't. It's too embarrassing. And, uh, and I lasted four months. I was drinking again. And I was in a bad drunk, and I was back taking all the treatments over again. Uh, I took them all over again, got out, and lasted almost a year. During that year, I didn't even think of going to Alcoholics Anonymous, because I already read the big book. And I knew about it. Why go and have a bunch of people tell you what you already know? Um, and uh, I got drunk again. Uh, and back in the treatment again after a month and then I got drunk real soon after that I was back in and they they gave me treatments every day instead of every other day and I became the macho guy of the unit I mean these old middle aged guys were still getting they were just getting the runs when I was taking my next treatment um, uh, and I was, you get yourself a scene where you can find it um I lasted a few months after that, and I was drinking again. And the fifth time back, they asked me never ever to call them up again. I was uh, demoralizing the other patients and the, uh, the staff. And my own morale was, you know, was for chapter three, so, you know, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. There was a, a coldness gets in there, you know. Just this empty, cold, uh, growing certainty that I can't, that wasn't that I can't do anything about it. I always had the feeling that I could stop whenever I wanted to. I could stay stopped whenever I wanted to. But it became progressively more clear that I never knew what I was going to want. The big, big news to me what I was going to want, you know. Just, I would be wanting it, and then all of a sudden a little shift. Hmm. I don't want it anymore. You know? And uh, I would have a drink out of almost um, 
um, this strange feeling that it was inevitable and who cares and it doesn't make any difference. Uh, I know my sixth time I was detox. I was in a psych unit in downtown Los Angeles. And I, uh, it was after a few days, I turned the corner of the detox and, uh, and it occurred to me that I was going to be drunk again pretty soon. Uh, it's just, it's just like a revelation. Just, you're going to get drunk again. You always do. You're the type that drinks again. It doesn't matter what you read, what prayer you pray, what book you read, what counselor you talk to. It doesn't matter. Do what you think. Go ahead. You're a flake. There's something missing in you. Um, and at this point, I was convinced I was alcoholic, but I thought I had something else besides alcoholism. To me, it was two distinct things. Was the alcohol I, that I couldn't drink, the physical allergy thing, I was kind of getting that. But the other part, I just thought you have something else it's you have an incapacity to be a human being, to care. You can't care. You know, that's unnatural. You're missing a part. You didn't get it. The caring gene or something. You know, the caring part, you just can't stay interested in survival. You can't stay interested in anything. You just want to be, excuse me, bye. Have a drink. Bye. Sorry. Uh, out the door. And, um, uh, and so with that attitude, I had no idea that that was a grace. And that today I am convinced it was a gift of God. My higher power, by my view, permitted me to feel my powerlessness over alcohol directly. And it was now that I went back to New Jersey after the detox and I joined these other broken down priests. I was the youngest one by 16 years and we went to meetings every day. Uh, and I could go to recovery house would do, would arrange, and uh, at least eight meetings a week, and some house meetings, other kind of stuff. And I was getting into it, and I, I was so sure that AA wouldn't work when I began, but I was relaxed at meetings. I wasn't sitting there wondering, gee, I wonder if this will help. I wasn't wondering. Uh, uh, I knew it wouldn't help. Nothing helps. Nothing works. I'm untouchable. Um, Ever had that untouchable feeling that they can't get to you? You've had the best work on you. you know? uh, and so I went along serene. I had kind of a funny negative serenity. Uh, and, um, but no sooner did I get that nice, calm negativity than you started puncturing through. you know, And people started saying things that I identified with. Um, this, uh, the little, little Czechoslovakian lady. And she just looked like the person who should not be in an AA meeting. She was short, she had curly gray hair, and she had a nice overcoat on, and she had a real sweet smile, and she had a real thick accent. Like, okay, go take care of the grandkids. You know, what are you doing here? And, uh, her turn came, and she was the real thing. She was a true menace to society. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, she, she just said a few things and you could go, oh my God, you know. Am I ever glad you're sober? Honey, honey, we're so happy to have you here. You know, um, and I 
caught her eye and she caught my eye and I identified exactly what, what her thing was. And I caught her eye and she knew I did. And you know what happens when that happens? You know, you, it's a blessing. It's this deep blessing. It says you're a part of the human race. And uh, we know how bad you are and this is no challenge to your higher power at all. He's got a lot of experience working with your type. Um, uh, uh, no particular challenge. You know, just come right along. Um, you're, you're, and that uh, and that kind of thing started happening. When, and I started to get uh, what a young man told me the other day. I, a few months ago, I was at a meeting in, um, at a men's recovery house in Torrance. I was asked to share in a Saturday morning meeting, and it was a real tight room. I mean, people were just crammed in there, and I love it when there's a little crammed room. Uh, seems to work better. Everyone's uncomfortable, you know. Um, and there was a there was a young black man who had steel rimmed glasses, and he had a real kind of an intense intellectual look, and he was grim, and uh, and we went along there. Caught his eye, and we identified a few things, and, but afterwards he came up to me and said, um, I'm not getting it. I've got to get it. Or I'll die. I have to get it. I just can't use and drink again. I just can't. But I'm not getting it. I'm not getting the spiritual thing. I want to get it. And I, excuse me a minute. No. Uh, I said, you seem pretty intense about this, uh, Wanting sobriety. Well, yeah, I want it. And, um, and we talked a little bit, and I said, "Is, is anything? Has anything happened that that? Because you're here, you didn't run away. You're at this meeting." He said, "Well, sometimes I get happy." <laughs> and uh, I said. That's God, you know. Sometimes you're opening your heart to a spiritual awakening, and it's already going on. What you do is just you go with it. That thing of sometimes you get happy. I, the way my experience of getting happy in Alcoholics Anonymous, it has a funny thing about it. One is that it's not the way I expect to be happy. It's not. It's so different than my idea of being happy that I don't call it happy. I've been happy for a week at a time. I didn't even notice it. Um, it's because it's not my type of thing. I'm not interested in it until I'm in the middle of it that I'm happy. I like it. I had an intense... Just last Saturday, I had a, uh, I had a, a weekend that was I got the schedule myself. Drove down from LA to San Diego and saw my friend Tom McKay and I have a sister now living in uh, Oceanside who's in the program for a couple three and a half years, going on four. And she has five children, you know, from the late twenties to their late thirties and they're all alcoholic. Four of the five are in the program. And uh it was her birthday. Kathleen's birthday and um, this week, and three of her five children, all of whom are married with children themselves, 
managed to get away from her family just for a dinner with mom. And I just happened to be there and get to join my sister and three of her grown kids. All And all of us are in the program. And um, I mean, that was such a joy. There's no words. There's no, I just had such a good time. I just loved it. I remember I looked at each one. I just zero in on this one and just look at them. And just be glad, you know. Just have this gladness. But that's what he said. That's what, the, that's what my man said. He didn't say I'm happy. He said, sometimes I get glad. That was the word. And I, and I just looked at the sober relative that I know would have been through and, and the spiritual reality of it. That of being set free from the slavery of alcohol available to love and have a life. It's just, you get glad. And I'm not sitting around when I'm in my self-centered fear thinking, gee, higher power, I sure would appreciate it if you just yanked me out of this bondage itself and let me identify with my brothers and sisters and get glad about their good fortune and get glad over your power to give people sobriety and, uh, and draw them along right while they remain in many ways immature and hung up and screwed up uh, still they have sobriety and have a life uh, and they're so and being screwed up still allows newcomers to identify with them easily um, and so uh, you know the goodness and love you have to get us is spread all the more easily you know through us flaky people who are so obviously immature and not done yet uh, you know that's not on my self-centered mind. And the, the more I'm in the program, I, just the last couple, I don't know, the last year this thought, kind of a recurring thing of, uh, you know, like what recovery is. I, I, I enter the step, I do some work on the step, it always turns out the way it, it's always life-giving. Uh, and then I say, well, enough of that. Let's get back to let's get back to worrying how, about yourself and uh, wonder if you'll ever be significant. Uh, uh, and uh, and I think you should be pretty ashamed of yourself for the lack of progress you've shown, especially in some areas over these past years. It's really kind of disgusting. Um, but maybe you can get a new car. Uh, and uh, <laughs> anyway, I just figured that's the deal. I, I when I when I wander, I find myself wandering into the that place of self-centered fear. I'll have the same reaction. I'll do the same stuff, and I can stay there as long as I want to. As long as, but usually I'm there. By the time I realize I'm there, I've been there. You ever notice you've been there a while? You know, and I didn't notice going over there. Just not just that I'm just there, but I've been here quite a while. You know, into my old uh, stirring my pot. Was, hmm. was, uh, uh, and I, because my ideal over these years and years was to, I always hold on to this thing. 
I have to pray hard and become spiritual and break through and finally be good. And um, it seems that I'm given sobriety a day at a time. I'm giving a program where I'm invited to do things that feed me one day at a time to act like a human being. And I'm full of quirky fears and hang-ups. And I have a very dramatic sense of myself, of my place in the cosmos. And I would always like to get a high rating. Uh, you know, it's a deeply self-centered, unspiritual concern. Uh, and I just had to, it all kind of is churning through. And uh, uh, my attitude is, I am powerless. My old ideas is a coherent whole thing of old idea-ness, you know. And just kind of living there. And I just say, higher power, please let me go on your path. Number one, uh, that I get to be, continue to accept your gift of sobriety one day at a time. Now, when I got a new sponsor one time, he asked me if I knelt down and prayed and thanked God every night for my sobriety. I said, uh, no, I, I, that's, as a habit, as a rule, I do that. I, I kneel down. You do it every night. Well, just about every night. You, know. uh, you do it every night. Um, that type. And, um, okay, I'll do it every night. Um, it's, uh, it's the center. I, I think it's the way an alcoholic has to introduce himself to a higher power. Uh, thank you for my sobriety. It's the absolute center linchpin of, of my relationship to God. Um, and then, uh, uh, pray for acceptance, uh, for my squirmy, self-centered fear, unredeemed self, and, uh, ask for the grace to walk in his path and to do the next indicated thing. Uh, it's that, that urge to get good enough so that we don't need God. <laughs> good, good enough. Uh, good enough so that we don't need the program, you know. Good enough so that we can be proud of ourselves, you know. Uh, that yearning, that, uh, you know, my, my first crazy Irish sponsor said, the only unforgivable sin is to avoid God until you're in good enough shape to fool him. <laughs> um, that's very Irish. And uh, I see this, um, uh, this is 25 after almost. Um, just a word about service. My most embarrassing experience in early recovery was the discovery that I was profoundly uninterested in being in service to anybody. <laughs> I, uh, I admired service. Uh, I um, was resentful of anyone else who was being in service because everybody thought they were great. You know, um, it always looked pretty boring to me, and uh, 
And I felt very embarrassed and ashamed that I didn't have any interest in being of service. And then I was tricked into being of service. Uh, I was hanging out with people that I liked, and they were the ones that had a sense of humor, and they were the ones that were usually doing something, and they'd get me to do it. And the minute I did it, I loved it. And I thought, oh, this isn't so bad. It's like just doing something. And then I, I hoped I wasn't going to be bothered again too soon. Um, uh, and my, it's the point about this, is really the point I already made, but just in a different angle. They, um, my experience is that I, I think I, I'm, no, I'm just like you. I'm made in such a way that unless I get to be of loving service, I go crazy. I'm born to be of loving service, and I can't stand it unless I get to be of loving service. Uh, but I don't have any instinct to do it. You know, I have to be maneuvered into doing it. And as soon as I do it, oh, good, no, no, that's good. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for the... And then... <laughs> that's the way you can fill up their paying attention or not. Uh, and then know that we don't rely on finding the right feeling. We rely on being in the right program of playing ball. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. At least the uh, sun is not shining directly at our eyes right now. Uh, let's pray this memory first. God, show me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. I'd like to reflect uh, during this period about step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh, a lot of people mention, I hear it shared meetings a lot about the reluctance to consider oneself crazy. I never had a problem with that. It was um, being restored to sanity. I don't feel insulted, but I feel disappointed in that I wasn't particularly interested in being restored to sanity. I wanted to be, I wanted what I wanted. What I wanted was not sanity. What I wanted was uh, happiness and success. And, you know, I wanted my dreams fulfilled. And I think this is the, uh, sort of the first stumbling block in faith. Um, it says few of us had any idea how crazy we were. I, um, I think the, uh, in the beginning, uh, we, we have, we kind of have two things we stumble on. Come all the way in. There's the seats here. Uh, there's three empty seats up here in the front. Uh, get a seat. It, you've got a bad attitude standing up. Um, uh, <laughs> um, 
You know, if there were a way to to get together and support one another in recovery and find and get into it and uh, enjoy the gift of life to the full without mentioning God, we would do that. Because just bringing up the notion of a higher power is so difficult because we have so many, all of our experiences are pretty much different uh, and we have uh, loaded with confusion and resentment um, and disappointment. I think there's more heartbreak around the notion of higher power than anything else. Because all of us got our hopes up and it, they said about, told me about God and then, okay, and it just didn't turn out very well. Uh, I don't know what happened. But I know the, the, the thing I don't think anyone ever gets over is when you first hear about punishment. So the typical catechism class, the Sunday school class, that all of us hear is, God made the world, he made you, he made all your friends. He created us to have a life. We are his children. Um, he loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent his word to be an encouragement and a direction to you. So all you have to do is listen to his word and respond to that and you'll have a very good life. And if you don't listen to the word, he'll roast you. Uh, and, um, I don't think most of us ever get over the last sentence. Uh, and there's, um, uh, and I'm not going to spend all this time talking about, uh, you know, this is a religious retreat in a way, but I think in the heads of most of us, there was a response there, you know. Uh, you all had that lesson. And they, um, it's important to, to face that and, to, and, be as direct about it as we can because if in the back of our head our higher, the higher power we meet is somebody who is a part-time torture chamber operator um, it really takes the edge off of trust um, uh, and <laughs> it's not somebody you want to go to um, the Okay, so I brought that up. i got to say something else. <clears throat> uh, I know I was in the program for a, a short time. And uh, I was... One of the things that really just knocked me out, part of the joy of getting sober, was, was noticing how, how spiritual... The discussion around Robin participation meeting is an AA. Uh, the spirit in the group. And one thing I noticed was that there's no spirit of punishment or revenge or let's okay. You know, someone's gone out again. Here they come back to the meeting. They're not drinking for six months. And the, 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 the secretary of the meeting doesn't say, well, who's coming back after six months of drinking? You think, now you come back and expect us all to smile at you now and, Take them outside. You know what we got to do. Yeah. Um, uh, well, there is no spirit of that. And I, uh, I thought the, the whole notion, that if we're dragged out, even if you, you're not a member of a church or you're, 
You think that's a bunch of nonsense about hell or punishment or anything. But if it's just lurking back there a little bit, it's a little, it's a real negative thing in our development of faith. Um, I know I went to my consulting theologian, I shared this before with most of you, um, Father Frank, not Father Frank Colborn, I use his last name, he's not an alcoholic, he's one of those normies who um, was the guy in your class you hate most because he never forgets anything, gets all A's forever, learns Greek real fast, got his doctorate in Rome and taught in the seminary for years. So I checked things out with Frank. And I said, you know, I've been to, going to meetings has made it very clear to me that there's no such thing as punishment from a higher power that he does later. Like he waits until you're going along, uh-huh, uh-huh. You think you're getting away with it, huh? Um, that there's no, they don't get you later. Uh, and that all the images of punishment have to do with a description of the, the pain and disorder and anguish that's the result of our behavior. Uh, that just, I lie, I get alienated. That's, that's right. No one does it to me. I basically do it to myself. Uh, and right in the, in fact, part of the anguish we feel is, um, is being in the presence of some life and love. Have you ever had a slip and you've been to meetings and, and then you, and you can't quite get back and you know there's a, there's a good spirit of friendliness and acceptance there, but you can't quite get in again. Um, that's hell. Uh, to be loved and not be able to respond to it. Um, and I think that's what hell is, is to be loved, not able something like a couple, try to keep this, uh, sex neutral. <laughs> if they have a couple, and they're married and they go along and they're not doing too well, but they're not doing too bad either. But, but one of them has an affair. I won't say which one. And, uh, and it's not exactly falling in love, but it's kind of exciting. And, um, and then the, the person who did not, was not unfaithful finds out about it. So see, the person who's not unfaithful has one hell of a program. They've been going to meetings and they kind of got it. They got the idea. And they've gone through a few years of recovery. And they have enough recovery so that although they're disoriented and, and have the hot oil poured over your head, pain, hurt about finding out of being two times, uh, but they don't lose it. And they don't lose it and, and just retaliate and hate. But, and don't pretend, they don't pretend it's not going happen either. It's hurt and it's awful. And then this person, then the one of some people finds out that their spouse found out. And they want to, they're not in love, they don't want to get married to this other person, but they don't want to actually say no and never see him again either. But on the other hand, well, I don't know. And if a person that can't quite make up his mind, her mind, and the person who's faithful says, well, what are you going to do? That's hell. Hell is, is having somebody steady and faithful. Well, you don't know what to say. Uh, I think 
I think that's a, uh, a higher power is love, period. To be loved could be just awful if I'm not ready for it. Uh, but that's it. Um, uh, when I gave this to my consultant theologian, I said, well, what do you think of that? Because there's really nothing thing as doing anything later. It's all the result of our own behavior and we're love period. He says, anybody knows that. Uh, I'd like you take it, I'd take it to a few media. I'll introduce you to some people who don't know that. Uh, and the, um, and then the next hurdle of, of faith, I think, has to do with um, how we call it self will run riot. You know, uh, I know I was praying. I, I got to uh, New Jersey as I, in my seventh institution as an alcoholic, and I was in a recovery house where we were required to wear our black suits and Roman collars to every AA meeting we went to. And we would uh, go in, a, in groups of four, five, or six, and we'd kind of walk in. And this is in the winter in New Jersey, uh, in the Protestant church basement. And so you, you come in with your, your suit and overcoat and black hat and Roman collar, and all walking together. And they, knew we were, they were not waiting for spiritual inspiration when they saw us. Um, you know, we were coming from that place on the hill where they sent them. Um, but I know, uh, uh, and once in a while, someone would come up and do this routine with me. One time it was very vivid. I uh, caught me on a coffee break and said, uh, Father, um, you know, I was wondering, you know, because you're a priest and all, and uh, and uh, higher power, you know, we've got the step of faith, and, and you're a priest, and you're supposed to know a lot about God and everything. Well, I'm just wondering... Um, well, um, uh, did you ever pray? <laughs> you believe in God? And it made me very angry that this person was asking me this. And the main reason that made me mad was that I didn't know what to say. I mean, I was more frustrated than she was. Uh, I, was I said a lot of prayers. I prayed a lot. Um, but I had to be around the program for some time before it began to dawn on me. I knew quite a bit about prayer. I knew very little about myself. I, I had no idea how childish and willful my prayers were. I was, I had this, I was just stuck with an image in my head of what God should do if he ever got around to answering my prayer. If he ever got around to answering him, I know what he'd do. He'd make me sober, poised, well-adjusted, and one hell of a guy. And, uh, he hasn't done that. So I guess he's not doing anything. Um, now I didn't do it in a logical thing like that. I was just, yearning for help and then ask God for help but it never occurred to me that the picture of help I had in my mind was a pretty unrealistic fear-driven full of contradiction thing kind of an adolescent dream deal uh, and I'm 
No. I'm asking, I'm treating God like my helper. I'm treating God like bringing the big fella for the tough jobs. Uh, I won't pay attention to it. And I'm saying, my will be done on earth as it is. While I'm in the disease, while I'm drinking, while I'm in the spirit of self-centered fear, I uh, am unable to mean thy will be done. I can say thy will be done in a prayer, and I, and I can try to mean thy will be done, but I can't really mean it yet. I can't mean it until I, I'm brought in or I experience that I'm receiving help from a higher power, help that I didn't even, couldn't picture before. But when I keep treating God like, um, okay, here's, here's what you do. Okay, get, get this straight. That when we have a, a self-will approach, uh, bring in God for, to help me with my project, this gives God a bad name. Uh, it also makes God seem very dumb. Uh, because it's, it's like, you've got this big dumb person, and you keep explaining things to him over and over again, and he never quite gets it. You know, just, huh? Huh? What is that? And, uh, you, you're, you're pulling him with a rope. Come on, God! And he's, huh? He's always a little late, you know, doesn't quite get it. It doesn't, a little fuzzy on the details, and what, um, we should need, and, um, and then sometimes something good happens, sometimes it doesn't, and you know, the hell with it. Um, and I think that's a fair picture of, uh, of the way it seems to us as we begin recovery.